Hi everybody, I'm Dhyani, the founder of Ekansh Foundation, and this is the Ekstar podcast. Our objective is to make Ekstar or the first step towards important and meaningful conversations that has the potential to make our surroundings Ekansh or undivided. By bringing together a myriad of voices with diverse backgrounds, opinions, and lived experiences, we hope to create a platform for short yet inclusive interaction and learning. We have the ever so talented Dr. Bhattacharya with us today as our guest. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Ever since I attended that webinar on uh, Right to Health by Red Lantern, I am in complete awe of the work you do. So, just so everybody else has some context, I'll briefly introduce her. Dr. Bhaswati Bhattacharya is the director of the Dinacharya Institute of New York City, where she practices and teaches holistic medicine, focusing on Ayurveda. After receiving her bachelor degree from the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Bhattacharya earned her master's in pharmacology from the Pharmacology Neuroscience PhD program at the Columbia University, and her master's in international health, public health, from Harvard University School of Public Health and Kennedy School, where she was the first ever Indian woman to speak at the commencement seminar. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a part of this. I'm so excited. to listen to your views on some of the questions i have prepared for you today okay so let's get started definitely so the first question is something that i ask everyone who comes on this podcast and that is what is your story how did you think of applying to upan for your bachelor's or becoming an assistant professor what was your inspiration behind all of this So I think you only want to know about the first part of my career because you only read out the first uh, first uh, couple of things I did. So if you want to know why I applied to college there, I applied to Penn because my parents at that time were living in Princeton, New Jersey, and being a young Bengali woman, I was fourteen, fifteen when I fourteen when I applied to college, fifteen when I started. So I was only allowed to go fifty miles away. because my parents wanted me home every weekend and the only schools that were within range were Penn Princeton Columbia uh I was allowed to apply to Cornell and of all of them I really loved University of Pennsylvania it is the most comprehensive university with all professional schools all on one campus and Princeton didn't have a medical school Columbia's medical school was uptown you know several miles away from the downtown campus and it was new york city which was not very safe at that time and cornell's medical school was in new york city whereas the undergraduate was upstate uh, in ithaca so if i wanted to do anything in health sciences i knew that i had to be on a campus where i could do the work as an undergraduate which is what i did so i went to penn penn also happens to be a really really good school um in which you cannot just be privileged and get through your classes you really have to be able to write you have to be able to do your maths you have to really pass your classes in india we can pay money under the table and get through our exams or we can call our daddy if daddy's rich and daddy will take care of it it doesn't work that way uh for 99.9% of people in the colleges in the us and so pretty good education at penn uh, as, as well it's a very big university as ivy leagues go so i was able to do a lot of things there 
And uh, I loved it so much that I forced all my younger sisters to go there as well. So we have a whole family, there's four or five of us that went to Penn. That sounds amazing. And how did you think about being an assistant professor after doing your MD and your residency? So how did the professor part come into action? So, you know, I knew that I wanted to teach. I think I do that well and I enjoy it. I also saw that a lot of teachers don't know how to teach and I wanted to be a really good teacher. I wanted to take the knowledge and transmit it um, accurately, which I don't think a lot of teachers do because they're either sloppy or they're not trained well or they're lazy or whatever. So I wanted to uh, see if I could transmit Vidya. Vidya is true knowledge, not fake news, but true knowledge. And when I finished my residency, I had done a lot of things by that time. And so unlike uh, most people actually, I was invited to become an assistant professor directly straight out of medical school residency. So that was a kind of a neat thing, actually. It was a lot less work for me because most people will start out and they'll be a reader and a lecturer. And there are different systems around the world for ranking of professors, but I was able to um, move straight into assistant professor. However, I decided to go in a direction that I didn't predict, which was the indigenous medical systems. And because of that, many people warned me. They said, you know, if you go away from the mainstream, you won't be successful. So many of my friends um, and colleagues have become, you know, awarded in very big posts, very big jobs. But in the USA, there's nothing like that for uh, ancient and traditional medicines. And so I haven't, um, I haven't been able to progress since assistant professor. I should have been a full professor by now, but they just don't want to validate ancient systems of medicine in the USA. It might be coming, but uh, in the last few years, it hasn't been there. So that's why I've been stuck at assistant professor. That is actually quite sad because uh, even when you read most of the ancient scripts, um, Hindu mythology and other, um, ancient readings, you can, you will find that Ayurveda is one of the most effective methods. And I think this is some, your work should be rewarded with the greatness that you're doing it with. So. But it's a societal issue, right? So if a society doesn't believe in ancient medicines, I mean, you know, the people that are ruling America today killed the Native Americans, right? They went in, they stole their land. They killed all of the Native American tribesmen who knew the land, who knew the medicines of that earth, just got rid of them, started from their own whatever. And even the um, Africans that came, they put them as slaves. And the reason they had them is because they understand the land so well. So they were able to do amazing farming. So they allowed them to farm, but then they kept them as slaves. And then they basically mistreated them and decimated um, the what we now call the Black Americans so that all that knowledge was not honored and respected. So it ended up with um, a society that doesn't really appreciate indigenous and ancient wisdom. And that is to their advantage because then they can brainwash people and they can also dominate using pharmaceutical medicines and modern 
technologies, modern food processing, modern uh, entertainment, and the old ways of healing and health are no longer vogue. Definitely, thank you so much for telling me that story. I did. I had absolutely no clue about um, such things happening in the past in the US. So thank you. And the second question I have for you is, how do you think women are placed in the current economic and political structures in developing countries? In developing countries, I think there is elite. There are uh, women, we're talking specifically about women, who come from families that daddy is very well placed. And so those women get very good educations. They get a lot of opportunities, they go to great schools, and then they get to pretend that everything is equal. And they do marches where they say, oh, they're, you know, we don't need equal rights because women already have equal rights. They're allowed to sit for the UPSC exam and take a year or two to study for it. They are allowed to just spend five or six years just studying and doing nothing else to go to undergraduate or medical school or law school or whatever they do. And those categories, like that very upper crust of people, the privileged elites, um, are the ones in the developing countries that get the best jobs, they head off to the UN, they work for the corporations, and they go to schools abroad. But if you look at the majority of people in developing countries, they have to work to supply for their families. There's no question about them going to finish anything beyond class 10 because that's going to take money but it's also going to take them eight hours away from working for the family to bring in income and while we think that oh well men should do it you know it's equal opportunity men and women work and so when women have to work to supply for their families there's no ability to go to undergraduate and just hang out and take some classes and hang out and spend the family's money. They have to earn money to keep the family going. And that's the majority of people in developing countries. So I think we have to be aware that we can't make any uh, judgments or um, overarching statements because there are different kinds of people, you know, in every city, in every country uh, of different by financial background, socioeconomic as we call it, privilege because you know there are caste system biases in India and in most cultures, but they just don't call it caste system. But then there's also biases of families against families where they don't want certain families to have opportunities. So if you happen to be born into a trash picking family or into a uh, family that has a small dokan, a store, in any part of the world, your chance of going and um, studying at an outstanding university just for the sake of intellectual knowledge is very small. Definitely. I mean, more than 60% of women in India are illiterate. And one of the major reasons of that is because of lack of awareness in the families as well, because they just don't, they feel that it's not important for the girl, child and to go and get education, but rather just uh, work directly without receiving like a proper degree. So I'm complete, I completely agree with whatever you said. So 
my next question for you is do you think that the overall political framework has made room for female intervention what do you mean by intervention um here by intervention i mean that most of the politicians that we see here are males i'm presuming majority of the politicians here in india at least are males so do you think that is like people there is a quota one third of uh, the seats in the legislative assembly should go to women so do you think that it is just because of the quota that women are getting placed in such roles or um, what what is your opinion on this you know there was an interesting study a couple of years ago that asked the question why there are so many uh, medical students that are women but then by the time you get to the professor level there's so few it again is dominated by men and they asked a bunch of women who were toppers in their class who maybe went to the masters level they said how come you don't go and run for the you know these top seats of the professor or the principal or the vice chancellor you know big big jobs as we say and the answer was actually quite telling many of the women who are very smart very able said you know it's a question of my happiness and the quality of life i do not want to sit there's two or three things first is i do not want to sit in a group full of men who constantly patronize me because i'm the one woman in the room and many of the women who have gotten there are very mean because they've had to fight to get where they are and they're very very uh, competitive against other females that's one second is women want a quality of life not just in the boardroom or in the office they want quality of life at home and so if they happen to have an arranged marriage where the husband assumes that the wife is going to do everything mother-in-law assumes that as well then if they're going to have a career they can but they have to do everything in the morning feed everyone cook get everything done and then go to work take care of the kids get them off to school maybe they'll get a little help from their husband who you know constantly wants to be rewarded for doing one or two things and then they go off to work and then they come home and they have to do everything all the house chores all everything because it's assumed that it's women's work in families that are a little bit more liberal where uh there's not that role you know there's not that many women and i'm not talking about privileged women who have servants to take care of everything i'm talking about women who really have to run their own homes they have a choice and sometimes they want to choose to be around their children when they're growing up if you want to be a good mother it's very tough to give your child to a daycare person there's so many scandals with daycare people and certainly they are not going to treat your child as they would treat their own child because they have to take care of 5 10 15 children also you don't know the habits that they have a lot of them are not educated in terms of ayurvedic dinacharya or ayurvedic food and so they're feeding kids all kinds of poisons because they just don't know most daycare people are very ignorant about nutrition and so if they choose that and they stick their kid in daycare so that they can work that child you know nature versus nurture that child may have grown up with or been born with good genes but they'll grow up with daycare 
and they won't get the same kind of nurturing. And there's only one chance to do it. It's those, you know, those years from age zero to age seven or eight, where all of the brain development and the biochemistry of the gut and the machinery of the immune system, all of that grows. And so mothers oftentimes say, you know, I really don't want to give up having children, but I don't want to give my children out to be taken care of by someone else. If you have the luck of a young mother-in-law who would love to take care of the children, like my sisters um, had, then she was able to go and finish her bachelor's and master's with no problem because she knew she had someone at home. And so in this study, it showed that women are choosing not to go up to those jobs because they want the balance. They want harmony in their home and they want to do a really great job with their children rather than working for a company that, you know, can just replace them. I mean, they're not, they might have a nice cushy job, but what's the use of having money when you don't have happiness in your home life? So these women have said, okay, I have an education. I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a, you know, a corporate MBA, I'm an engineer, but I really want to be the CEO of my household. And so I've been thinking about that a lot because I really respect the choices that many very uh, schooled women make through their education to say, I want to be at home and have a really happy life. And if I don't need to work for the money, then I won't work. I'll just bring up my children. Definitely. That is so well answered. I was able to understand. Uh, and I'm sure everyone else also who has no clue about the uh, political framework or other um, frameworks in general will be able to understand as well. So you are a woman excel, uh, excelling in your field. So how do you think female representation in such a sector, which is uh, related to education and public health, uh, which is very political, change the perception of people around you? So I think the way that I do things is rather perfectionistic. And I think that in some ways that inspires people. Some people really love it, that I have very high standards and I love to teach other people. I don't hoard knowledge. Um, I love to share it in uh, open ways. So people like that. And I think the students really gain from it. So that's really great. Um, I think because I haven't had the same challenges, I mean, I've had different challenges, but because I haven't had the same challenges as women who are trying to juggle many different things, um, I, haven't, I haven't been a role model for women who are trying to you know, um, be a mother, be a wife, be a, a homemaker, be a doctor, so in medicine, there's a lot of women who, um, you know, like I couldn't afford children. I had to make the choice that either I was going to be a doctor or I was going to have children and I could not afford children. And medical school was very expensive. And by the time I paid back the money, by the time I got out, I had to pay back money. And by the time I paid back the money, there was no way I could have children uh, unless I had a very wealthy husband, which I didn't. So the fact that I'm very practical about it and the fact that I've made difficult choices is my own case. So 
I don't think that I represent the common woman and I don't think I'm a role model for most who would want to do the conventional choices that other people, you know, um, like most of society does. But as a doctor, I think that um, a lot of women who are doctors are amazing because they have a lot of life experience. They have a lot of clinical experience from bringing up kids and they have large families and so they're able to do it. However, the women who I see who are privileged, come from small families, spend all their time studying and never uh, interacting with community. They barely ever go out and volunteer or work at the mandir or the gurdwara or some community shelter or some homeless shelter. They just don't have anything but book experience. They don't have any practical experience. They don't know how to think commonly and logically. And so even though they do really well in their um, exams, they're not really good doctors. And I've seen a huge number of those in the last few years because they're very good at the books, but they don't have bedside manner and they're not good with patients. And so I really urge uh, female doctors to become more well-rounded, to go and serve more in places that are outside of their you know, very posh specialties and learn what it really means to serve. I think that that's really important for becoming a good uh, human being, but also a good doctor. But you know, a lot of my statements are focused around medicine. And when you were talking about political representation, for example, in legislative assembly, they have a pretty posh life. They get a lot of different uh, facilities that allow them to, um, what shall we say, to, to skirt the normal people's issues. So sometimes people can go that route because they get those advantages. They get those, you know, those perks as we call it. And each woman makes her choice mainly for survival and for her value system. And women have all different values just as men have. You know, the fact that we claim that women are more emotional, I don't know if that's entirely true. I've seen a lot of women that are very transactional and have ambition and they are willing to cut people down on their way up. They have no qualms about it. They don't, they don't ever think about being humane. I've seen school principals that are so strict that they forget to be humane and they beat their, the children in the school or they abuse children in the school and they forget that they're supposed to be good you know, uh, role models. So I think it's not just about women, but I think there are, um, there's a lot of abuse of power when women are immature. And so, so maturity, who teaches women good character and good um, uh, human values? That is a bigger question than being educated or being, you know, privileged and having a high-level job. I think being a good person, having values that help others, but also for women. Definitely, for sure. Um, yeah, I can see you properly now. Actually, your screen was frozen for quite a bit. That so. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's much better now. Okay, am I moving now? Yeah, I can see you moving. Moving. Perfect. Okay, sorry so, about that. No, no, no problem at all. 
So my last question for you is, how do you think the voices of underrepresented communities can be heard even if they aren't in positions of power? You know, this is a tough one because people have to find their sense of power and most people never do. I have met people with great privileges, lots of money who don't know how to speak. They don't know how to articulate. So they go into a room, they listen, and then they come out and I say, you had such great ideas. Why didn't you say something? Uh, I don't. I don't know how to. Um, I. I feel. I. Um, yeah. I have to think about it. Right. They don't know how to articulate. They never learned to communicate, so they didn't learn how to articulate. And learning human um, interactive values is really important for underrepresented society people whether they're underrepresented because of the varna, meaning the profession or the kind of work that their family does, or varna as in caste, which, you know, people think there's a lot of caste issues uh, between Brahmins and non-Brahmins, or whether it's varna in terms of education level, people who have doctorates versus people who only have bachelors or don't even have completion of high school, um, and there's all different kinds of classifications by which people can be considered underrepresented. And I think that people take advantage of it. You know, there are a lot of people that say, oh, well, I'm of this scheduled, you know, caste or tribe, and so I can do this, this, this. That doesn't help anyone unless they are super um, motivated and number one, want to do the work for the sake of doing the work, and number two, really want to pull up their education level and move forward. But what I find is there are a lot of people who basically want entitlements. They wanna do the least amount possible because they are Brahmins or because they are women or because they are, you know, whatever, whatever minority you wanna say. But even if they're the majority, even if they're the, you know, general category male in India or the white male in the US, they wanna do the least amount possible, get a job and just sit and just get paid to do nothing. That's the problem. People that have passion to do something, whether they're underrepresented or overrepresented, those are what we need more of today in society. And that's really where we're lacking. We have a lot of people that are what, <laughs> what are being called sheep, right? They just follow everyone else because it's easier. It's harder to step out and have your own views. It's harder to decide that you're gonna make a difference. I remember being 18, 19 years old and deciding that what I really wanted to do was be a really great speech giver. I wanted to learn how to speak articulately and be able to argue a point, any point, whatever I'd be given in school, I wanted to be able to argue that well. I wanted to be able to choose my words, use my tone of voice, use my expressions, to be able to convey very difficult ideas. And so I started watching everyone that I thought was a good speech giver or a good lecturer. And that was my choice. And I feel like that is a skill that if we prioritize giving to all people, all young people from age you know, six, seven in school, all the way up to age 20, 25, that is going to transform every underrepresented uh, person, whether it's an LGBTQ transgender person 
or whether it's a woman or whether it's a person that's obese or whether it's a person who has differently abled limbs um, or autism spectrum disorder. There are so many people that we call underrepresented. They need to just learn how to articulate. And the ones that do are amazing because they are able to convey the clarity of their thoughts to the, um, the audience. And they do gain an audience because they're able to. I think the biggest crisis today is that people do not learn how to articulate their actual thoughts. Either they explode with anger or they are introverted and they hold it all inside. And then because they are you know, so uh, trembling with all that stuff inside, they either get addicted to drugs or to alcohol or they start smoking or they are sexaholics or shopaholics or you know, sometimes they're workaholics because they ha haven't learned to express their feelings. So Ayurveda says, you must learn to connect your mind with your feelings, with your gut, because your gut emotions are your biggest um, connector of your, you know, your actual, like they say, your gut instinct. So if I could gift all, as you called, underrepresented minorities something, I would gift them the ability to be able to speak articulately and convey their feelings as well as their thoughts, both in an impassioned, um, expressive way, but also in a logical and very understandable way for different audiences. Definitely. Um, the human voice is the most perfect and most important instrument after all. And You've explained it very well uh, through your answer to this question. So thank you so much for being a part of our podcast. It was lovely speaking with you on such important topics. I'm sure our audience here has gained a lot from our conversation. And thank you so much for being a part of this.